Welcome back to Presentation Thinking, aka the Storyteller Study Club, aka AKA Molly. The dice was loaded from the start. We are talking about tragedies today Uh, from the one and only Seven Basic Plots, Why We Tell Stories, a big fat book by Christopher Booker. We are six down after today. Yep, yep, this is number six. Chrissy B. Number six of seven. For the seven basic plots, why we tell stories. If you haven't read it or if you haven't listened to the previous five episodes, this is all about Christopher Booker, an English journalist and yeah, novelist, and who is obsessed with how storytelling worked and spent his life creating this monster book about the seven basic plots, how each story could fit into a type of plot structure. And today we're talking about tragedy. So If you don't want to be sad, nah, just kidding. We'll make this fun. It'll be, <laughs> we're, we've got some dark examples for you, but you know, it's stuff that everybody knows. We're going to talk about Romeo and Juliet. We're going to talk about Bonnie and Clyde and how this plot is actually quite similar to some other ones. Yeah, we are, aren't we? And Molly, I had a, I had a hard time with comedy, right? Because um, Chris Booker didn't meet my expectation. You know, like I think of comedy, I want to laugh, but mm-hmm. I obviously, I'm not well read. Like him, <laughs> he was a professional reader, by the way. He, this book say, is just all the books that he ever of read. Examples, yeah, dissecting and, ta- and categorizing them, basically. Yeah. And I don't know. This is a worthy exercise. Why, Mikey? Like for the press thinkers, why do we? Why are we doing this? Yeah, why are we doing this? Well, because if you've ever been to like a business conference or in marketing, they're always like, blah blah blah, storytelling. You know, mm-hmm. blah blah blah, storytelling is everything. It's mm-hmm. so important and. I get that. I think you and I both have seen good instances of that. Mm-hmm. But I think what where I've seen that that advice fall short is like, well, what does that even mean? Like, what do you mean tell a story? Like, and um, and so I think when we when we were also looking up some cool things to do for our Ghost Ranch Communications, our seven year anniversary, we found this like, oh, there's seven basic plots. Maybe that'll help us get our heads around you know storytelling, so that mm-hmm. uh, we can when we're preparing a TED talk or a presentation or helping a client prepare their presentation. We've got like a little bit more toolkit mm-hmm. or tool belt crossing analogies, but like, we just want to know like the building blocks, the foundations, what's like storytelling 101. And we thought these plot archetypes would help us uh, if we can just at least like get our heads around them. Right. Totally. Yeah. And um, it goes without saying when you're building a presentation or applying your product or service to one of these story plots, you might, you definitely don't want to be the tragedy. You don't want to be the tragedy <laughs> hero in here. Right. So this is a podcast on how, what not to do. Okay. Yeah. And, and I do like when we, once we get through it, Molly, I do want to talk about like maybe why you would present in a tragedy plot mm-hmm. line. I'd love to hear. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So, Christopher, if you've been listening to previous episodes, has a series of stages in which these plots take place. Some of them have similar titles, but again, we've got five basic stages. And just as a quick synopsis, tragedy, as per Chrissy B. defines, is where the main character makes a mistake that causes them to fall from good fortune to despair. Mm-hmm. And the protagonist is, or, you know, the, he's a hero with a major character flaw. And it makes a great mistake, which is ultimately their undoing. It leads to ends and destruction. They're unfortunate and evokes pity, their folly, and the fall from a fun- of a fundamentally good character. So, and he used um, five five well known examples. These yeah. are at least in his first breakdown of it. And so one was 
you know, the Greek myth, Icarus, a German legend, Faust, Shakey's uh, Macbeth, Jekyll and Hyde by Stevenson and Lolita uh, by Nabokov. Mm. And yeah, it was kind of cool. Like, so he will, he sets up those five stages and then he did go through and he's right. They really all do follow these same five stages. And then in latter chapters, I mean, his tragedy section has three different chapters. He goes on and, and talks about even more that we know certainly, and they all do follow this structure, which starts in yeah. stage number one, anticipation. Anticipation. So this is the spot, Mikey, the setup basically, where the hero is in some way incomplete or unfulfilled and thoughts are turned towards the future in hope. There's like a hopeful sense here. There's a lot of times like this idea of something they want to do or accomplish. And one of the first examples he uses is Macbeth. And this is one I was familiar with in my Shakespeare days of yonder. Yeah. And so Macbeth is returning from this victorious battle with someone else. I can't remember his name. Banquo. Yeah. Banquo. Great name. Gonna name my next dog that. Yeah. And uh <laughs> and he is visited by three witches who tell him that there's a prophecy, he's gonna be king. So he's like, Oh hell yeah, things are going so good. Like, I can't wait to be king. Mm-hmm. Cue the Lion King. And um, and so it's kind of this, you know. It moves perfectly into this next stage, which is called the dream stage, where he's committed to securing that things are going almost too well, you know. And I think the first flaw, right, with Macbeth, I guess, in particular, is that to secure this dream, he sets about murdering the king. So, like, that's not a good, that's, (laughs) you know, there's different ways you could have gone about it, right? But his wife straight up, Lady Macbeth, convinces him to murder the king. He's like, that's a great idea. That's the way it's going to happen. And it works out perfectly. Like, he's set in line. And then things are going, like, really yeah. well, right? Like, the dream stage is like, hey, I think I just got away with this. You know, yeah. like, being king is pretty dope. I think that's a key feeling to the dream stage is that things almost seem to be going too well. You're like, uh-huh. wait, what's happening? Um, and we'll we'll go through this with a couple other examples, too. But then what happens next is that it leads to the frustration stage where that act, the first initial act that was dark, a dark act or a mistake that the character has made leads into another one where someone might've found out. So he's got to kill this person. And then I forget. Yeah. I'm forgetting the names of these characters, but Banquo is like, I furious thou hast playest most foully, you know, he's like, (laughs) I'm on to you, man. I I suspect Mm -hmm. maybe your king because you maybe murdered the other king. Spoken in perfect iambic pentameter, Mikey. Yeah. Uh, and so this is just like the butterfly effect in the bad way, right? Where it's oh, like domino, like we got to commit another murder and then another murder. Oh. And in the Bonnie, he also goes through a Bonnie and Clyde example, right? Which is where, you know, they end up with that policeman in their possession, right? And they're like totally running with a hostage and it's like absolute yeah. chaos, right? It's just kind of becoming <laughs> a snowball effect of bad acts. And Which is the is that the nightmare stage like where it just gets totally worse into, and worse and yeah, worse? Yeah, the absolute bottom of the arc, right? Like where we're like things are out of control. There's this mounting sense of threat and despair. Yeah, forces of opposition and fate are closing in, and that leads us to the finale of any tragedy, which is ultimately. We usually ends in a lot of violence, right? It doesn't yeah. always like have to be necessarily death, but there's quite frequently death or destruction. And that's, yeah, some final act of chaos mm-hmm. and the hero is destroyed in the end yeah. in some way. Whether or not physically the idea is destroyed as well. So, um, of course, with Macbeth, that's, yeah, everyone is 
everyone dies at the end, right? Yeah. I'm I'm glad that I finally, yeah, did get my head around Macbeth. That is a cool story. Mm-hmm. He cites the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Yes. Did you know about that story before? I don't know much about it. It's I should, having lived in Ireland, you know, it's one of the wild famous ones. And there's a lot of cool murals about it. Um, yeah. But no, I don't, I'm not very familiar with the story. Man, it was pretty rad. Like, I don't want to like, eh, I'll spoil it for you. Cause he's, yeah, give me a spoiler. Chris, spoil it for me. But yeah, this guy is a real handsome, dashing young fella, Dorian Gray. Like, just the most beautiful man you've ever seen. You just, everyone wants to be around him and stuff. And um, he's basically given a prophecy by someone and to say, like, you're going to have it all, man. So there's this like bit of temptation. And he's like, yeah. So anyway, like they paint this beautiful portrait of Dorian Gray. Mm-hmm. It, which preserves him in this like stunning vibrancy of youth in this, the ultimate man. But there's a sort of like a dark figure who tempts him with two thoughts. One is, hey, um, what if you could remain this beautiful always and young? And, and he's like, he's like, that's cool. And what if you could live a life of total indulgence? And so mm-hmm. kind of sets him on, and he's focused on doing that now, right? And and so that sets him off into this dream stage where he's indulging, he's he's living it up. But he's also leaving sort of this wake of destruction in his path. And as he does darker and darker things to people, he doesn't change because of this sort of prophecy. But he looks at the portrait and he starts to notice like it starts to turn a little bit sour looking. And like, you know, there's like Mm -hmm. a like the portrait starts to change. It's really trippy. And then, yeah, yeah, so it goes on and on. And then, you know, there's a, of course, a death at the end. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's it is super tragic. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a cool, it is like, I think tragedy taps into that psychological narrative where it's like this, I'm glad you said that earlier, where it's like a temptation of someone asking you like, do you want this? You could tap into this whole thing. It's kind of the devil on your shoulder and there isn't much of an angel to counter it. And Christopher does say that in the second tragedy part, he says, you know, it's a, it's very, it's not dissimilar to the beginning of overcoming the monster plot or the call, which if you'd listened to those two episodes, you know that there is some kind of inciting incident that sends the hero on the quest or quest mm-hmm. on the call. And we are kind of in agreement as the audience, like this is a good thing for them to do. Whereas I think the distinct difference in the tragedy is that you're kind of have this thought like, oh no, like they're kind of slipping away here, right? They're letting themselves go down this this maybe dark and twisted path. Mm-hmm. They said, um, he says, blah, blah, blah. This is on page 173. The great difference between tragedy and other kinds of story begins with the nature of the summons, which draws them into that adventure. When the hero of an overcoming the monster story or a quest receives their call, however hazardous the course it opens out to him, we are in no doubt it's right for them to answer it. But when the hero or heroine of a tragedy reaches the same point, we are uneasy. We are aware that the call is not the same nature, which is why it may more aptly be described as the temptation. So there's kind of like a little Adam and Eve story yeah. going on. Yeah. And in the quests, like we know that this hero has light. They will do anything to get to that end. And in the tragedy, one of the other differences he points out is like this temptation as opposed to the call is like, they're almost a little more wishy-washy. They're like, ah, should I do it? Should I not? And then mm-hmm. then they finally do, like, it just becomes their obsession mm-hmm. in a way too. And so then they do have that, that locked in focus. But at first it isn't so apparent that they must pursue this. They Because maybe they are sort of debating with themselves like, yeah, but I, I might have to kill a few people to get that thing or whatever. Yeah, Do a few totally. naughty things, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I love the Bonnie and Clyde walking through that example, having watched that in film school. But like, 
in the beginning, there's this thing where Bonnie's just excited by like the sexy crime life that Clyde leads. And we know on paper, they're like, okay, yeah, this guy's a heist man. Like he's not a good guy. He's not doing good things, but you were kind of cheering for them in the beginning because it's like cool and fun. And then it turns into this spiral domino effect where there's like, you know, they capture the policeman that's been taking them, you know, there's frustration with their like relationship. And then they end up having like their crimes get bigger and bigger with the robbing a bank, hijacking a car, et cetera, et cetera, leading to all these things that eventually another one of the characteristics of tragedy is that the setup for these characters, the heroine, her- hero and heroines, have mm-hmm. close ties with family, like uh, relationships in the community around them. And it's usually those ones that are broken as the story goes on. So in the story of Bonnie and Clyde, that's very apt because it's the father that ends up turning them in, like kind of oh, betraying right. trust, right? And huh. so that's like a key piece of it is that these strong bonds that are initially there are the ones that end up being broken. That reminds me of like the movie Blow with Johnny Depp and uh, Penelope, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in her prime. Yeah. Depp's, you know, the hero character has a, he's like kind of always rethinking it. Like he he really wants it at some one point, like all that, all the money and power and everything. And then like he reconnects with his dad, who's like, I think, he, and then he starts to rethink it, but then his mom turns him into the cops every time. And mm-hmm. yeah, he does go back to that relationship with his, with his family. And yeah, it's like a breaking like, bad thing too. He it, does, oh, he, totally. And he you have to get saying, deeper and deeper. It's like, yeah. there's a point where there's no return. Right. And like, that's a characteristic too. Yeah. He talks about the divided self trope where the hero has two sides to grapple with. So it's a little bit of that Jekyll and Hyde. We all have like the evil and good and the tragedy plot chooses the the bad. Right. So I love, I love that as a dramatic like twist in the plot. You know, we've talked about did, the dark yeah. versions of previous plots where this is like, yeah, the hero, it, things go wrong. But for the tragedy specifically, it's where from the onset, we know this, this person set out on the path, like of darkness, you know, and they're like, yeah. those, those fit well with like the drug lords, the criminals, et cetera. Right. Even if we might be cheering for them. And it's funny too, like you mentioned the split, Romeo and Juliet, one of the most probably often cited tragedies, right? And the split there, it wasn't necessarily that like Romeo or Juliet like chose this evil life. They, their families were split, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it could be a interesting, but there's, there's always some level of division mm-hmm. that does create these, I guess, qualms with, and and like some decisions that need to be made maybe. Oh yeah, definitely. This quote on uh, page 189, where he's talking about Romeo and Juliet is I think not an exception to the rule as like, well, actually it is because he's describing the hero as the monster as, as most tragedies turn out. But with Romeo and Juliet, it's the families and the feud that's the monster. And the true tragedy is that these lovers have died for each other despite that feud, right? Right. So he says, you know, it's not so much Romeo or Juliet themselves who present us with the spectacle of divided self. The split lies in the great feud dividing their two families. And the desire of the hero is not to promote conflict, but to escape from it. So in other words, the fault which sets them at odds with those around them is not within them, but outside them. And so I thought maybe I made a note here because I was like, maybe that's why Romeo and Juliet is so sad because it's neither of the characters fault that they're born into these, these feuding opposing family gangster families. If you watch the Boslerman version. And Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's like this true tragedy is they, 
they didn't even choose that for themselves, right? And it was just mm-hmm. this quick mistake for Juliet's death that Romeo ends up dying as well. Right. Or yeah, totally. And what's his face? Romeo's friend that doesn't deliver the message in time. That doesn't that uh, that told that Friar Lawrence uh, had created the death drug that made it appear as if she was, you know, in an eternal sleep or something. Eternal sleep. Tragic. So yeah, that's the true tragedy there, you know, yeah. is is these these just petty families. But it's a bummer. But like Molly, that one at the end, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I watched a YouTube synopsis to summarize <laughs> it, but they're like, and in the end, the families decided to end their feud. Is that right? Yeah. They're like, let's it, shake on it. That's a bummer that our, our young teenager totally. kids died. That's the thing that brought it together, right? So it is a tragic story for the love story, but then it kind of takes something that dramatic and tragic to bring the two families together. And maybe, I don't know, I, I think that's both an exception to the rule and maybe like this beautiful emotive action after the fact. So maybe that's why Romeo and Juliet was especially, I don't know, resonated with a lot of the world. <laughs> and um, yeah. yeah, you're able to kind of come to a peace after after something like that. So maybe that was like appeal to some universal emotion for folks. Well, <laughs> I mean, Molly, do you want me to blow your mind really quick? Yeah, obviously. The origins of tragedy, the word in Greek, a scapegoat. The animal or human scapegoat was regarded symbolically carrying the sins of a tribe. So like in their death, there these tragedy stories, like while the hero dies, maybe the community around them somehow finds some maybe peace, right? Or like they learn something from this and that's where we are supposed to learn from it, right? Maybe. And I think that's also the an instance where it's like the hero has become the monster. And so in getting rid of that idea or their actions or their presence that is like dark and affecting the community or the people around them, it reaches peace. Even though it's a tragic ending, it's like it reaches some kind of uh, resolution in that way because you had to rid themselves of the monster. And then they become lessons. So like where I was thinking of, okay, what kind of, if you were to give a presentation, like the ones I was thinking of maybe are warnings or of like, Instead of chasing these earnings to any extent, we're going to learn from the lessons of... Mm -hmm. Tragic Greek mythology. Yeah. But like, okay, Icarus flew a little too close to the sun, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we're not going to do that. We're going to play it safe, you know, as our... If this is like an investor relations type thing, whatever, it's like, we know that we can learn from watching, okay, someone got a little carried away or maybe made a unethical choice. We're going to learn from that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think, I do think like just the telling of one of these stories weaving something in to say like here's an example we're going to avoid we can learn from this tragic outcome and do it the better way yeah a hundred percent and also i think another trait that pops up all the time in the tragedy plot is that thing of i'm thinking of that harry potter and the the first harry potter scene where they're stuck in the ivy and the more they move the more they're stuck in it you know the vines that's like coming up and strangling them so you have to be still and just sit through it And I think that's like, not only like the metaphorical lesson of sitting through the discomfort, but in the tragic plots, the hero keeps doing these acts that get worse and worse, further ensnaring them into the thick of their plot and the thick of their predicaments. And so I think from a lesson with business and presenting like solutions to things, you can't just be like frantically, desperately trying to fix, 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 fix without just like sitting in it and being like, what really needs to be addressed and maybe boiling some stuff down rather than like taking too many quick actions, rash Damn. decisions or something. I love that. Maybe that's a stretch, but I think maybe that's the connection I'm making. 
No, I don't think so. Because sure, like the anticipation stage, maybe you were tempted and you were focused on the wrong KPI or something, yeah. you know, and you're like, <laughs> okay, it's feeling really good. We're in this dream yeah. stage right now. But before we go and kill off, you know, like mm-hmm. a few people to, uh, to bury the evidence, Let's reconsider. Maybe yeah. this isn't. Uh, maybe this could have a tragic outcome if we're not careful. Yeah. So I'm thinking of a modern example that I think fits really well. And I just thought of this. So I'm going to run with it. But is the founder, I forget his name, the founder of Firefest. Dude, and okay. I, was, the, I, and I watched That's... both documentaries about this because it was fascinating, right? And I think a lot of people watched it. But this was a guy who was so motivated by money and, and fame and attention and buries his grave as deep as possible, even when there was like, there was warning signs and things being like, Hey, I think you should push this. I think you got to cancel. I think you got to get less people. He's like, I'm going to call uh, a couple rappers I know and ask for more money, actually, you know? <laughs> and so and that just went dip further, further and further down. And everyone was like, we knew that path was like a bad yeah. one from the get go. And it just got worse and worse. And every action he took further got him down a rabbit hole. And yeah. I've heard he's getting out of jail and like, wants to do something similar. I've like read right, something. Right. Yeah. And yeah, even like at the end of the one documentary, I forget it was the Netflix or Hulu, please watch both. They're, <laughs> they're very different perspectives, but he talks about some business that he started from jail about like getting money f- from people and like doing kind of cold calling weird, like investment things on being like, we're going to get you with a bunch of models and take photos yeah. and you're going to be like an influencer. Oh, just yeah. crazy. That's a tragic, that's a modern day tragedy. No, it is. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Like, yeah. Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, that stuff, like we work, that whole scandal, yeah. any oh, of the, yeah, yeah. these things that seem maybe too good to be true. Mm. Hmm. You know, yeah. Hmm. Take a second look. The, yeah. the one that fascinates me is like, what the hell is Elon Musk's story plot sure. going to be? Like, yeah. this is one that we, who knows, man? Is he, is he, a, is he your savior? Is he, is he the monster? I know. No I idea. Think he's a good embodiment, and like, obviously, it depends on who you ask, but he's a good embodiment of even if he has good intentions, like he says he does. There's definitely this these elements of evil that he works with. He's been he was born into like a lot of richness and wealth. And uh-huh. so it's not a rags to riches story at all. It's more of this, like, you are embodying both this good and evil claiming you're doing it for good. And like, we'll wait and see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we're all just privy to it. You know, the man that owns Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. Right, right. So I think there's a lot to be learned from the tragedy. It's like, yeah, what, how, what not to do. The bad rabbit hole, the dark rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. I mean, how do you get caught in that? course of action that just Mm -hmm. leads you to your ultimate demise. So Molly, what was your like take on, was it, you already had some deep tragedy experience, like with your days in drama club and (laughs) stuff like that. I thought even just like in my life and I was like, totally. Your life's been pretty tragic. I go to therapy. It's (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, yeah. I had done some Shakespearean theater stuff when I was younger and I always thought that was really fun. Sometimes it's fun to just not have the always the happiest ending, right? I think that's I always loved that movie. Um, you know, everyone was obsessed with 500 Days of Summer when it came out and everyone's like, "Oh, he doesn't end up with Summer at the end. Like, what a bummer." And I I remember loving that when it first came out being like, "Yeah, that's something different, you know." And that story is not a yeah. tragedy by any stretch of the imagination, but it has the unexpected ending. So I think it's important to consider those types of plots. The one that came to my mind while I was reading was uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Did you ever watch that movie? No, I 
All right. Maybe check it out. So I won't go into it. I was, I talked about this in the voyage and return and uh, the societal voyage and return. And I was thinking of devil wears Prada where she kind of gets carried away with all the fashion and the money and that kind of uh, image yeah. and status. But inevitably she does return. It's not tragic. She uh, doesn't get carried away with it. And she goes on to like, you know, be mm, the journalist she wanted to be. I'll tell you what, the very last sentence of the tragedy plot sets up Plot number seven. Yeah, our final. I feel like this is plot best for last. Maybe yeah. this one might be mm-hmm. so good. Rising from the ashes. It's the rebirth plot, everyone. So we'll be covering that one next. And finally, to close our Chris Booker seven plots, why we tell stories, and then Mikey and I will understand everything there is to know about storytelling. I think so. That's right. The podcast might end after that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and um, but we might as well do one or two last spice cabinets. Spice cabinets. Yeah. What do you think? I know what you're going to say already for the song, the tragedy song uh, is inevitably say it. Tell me what I was going to say. Dire Straits, Romeo and yeah. Juliet. And I would like to also plug with that song because I was a millennial and didn't listen to that one first. The Killers do a pretty awesome cover of that. And I thought that was the original. So sorry to sorry, everybody. But now I know and I like both. I like them all. And I think that's a really great song. Mark Knopfler, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. for what was just... That was... Just completely <laughs> irresponsible. Should I bleep that out? Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, you guys. I oh love Dire Straits. I do, but it took me, yeah, I just went backwards, you know. I, I made it, you know. Well, Gen Z might not know that. That was what I was going to say. But there's a song from 1994, album Illmatic, Nas, Life's the Bitch. Life's a bitch and then you die. I think that would be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'm walking out to that one. (laughs) Okay, perfect. I love that for the tragedy. I also would um, like to plug I am a huge fan of the Romeo and Juliet, Romeo plus Juliet, Boz Lerman version. And the soundtrack is pretty amazing. Is that DiCaprio? Yeah, it's with DiCaprio and Claire Danes. My Mm. OG crush on DiCaprio started there for sure. And yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It's so well made and really funky and kind of trippy. If you haven't seen it, for sure, like strobe light warning, you know, but um, Mm. but the soundtrack, if you need something kind of tragic and epic to listen to is is really good. Yeah. So there you go. Cool. You could also do, um, I'd also like to plug um, maybe Olivia Rodrigo's Driver's License. That's a pretty tragic song. So that's 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 one to walk out to as a tragedy. Mm. Thank you, Will, for yeah. splicing that in. <laughs> All right, yeah. I Shout out it. to our editor, Will Comer, down in A Town. Mm-hmm. Shout out to our illustrator, Nono Flores. I think yeah. in Savannah, Savannah, New Orleans, Savannah. We love you guys. What's up? You keep the podcast rolling. Shout out to the Ghost Ranch communications team, ghostranch.com. Do you or someone you love struggle with PowerPoint? Do you have a a presentation crisis, call our hotline or visit ghostranch.com. Bunch of visual storytelling experts, people who love and actually geek out working in PowerPoint and Google Slides all day, every day and making it look um, like something you'd be proud to present. And we are known for our speediness. So we will respond to your cold email. Please email us. We yeah, have nothing do, more. Yeah, try us. You can also reach out. Also, don't forget Prez Thinkers to follow Presentation Thinking on Instagram, Prez yep. with a Z Thinking on Twitter. And hashtag presentation thinking, I'm all over that. So uh, DM me, Molly, at ghostranch.com, and you can find us out there. All right, write us out, Will. 
Y'all, until next time, keep on pitching. With the sad music. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> oh, Tragedy. Okay, bye. Bye.